I have been dropping a couple of items into the ears of just about every editor and author I make. Like, what the hell is wrong with with soup publishing? There are like so few seriously good soup books. 20 years ago, there was an amazing range of choices. I don't know why soup doesn't get any love. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I welcome Matt Sartwell into the studio. Matt is the owner of the legendary New York City bookstore Kitchen Arts and Letters and one of the biggest supporters of cookbooks in the business. On this episode, we find out what it's like to run an independent cookbook store today and go over some of Matt's favorite cookbooks of the year. Matt also shares his thoughts on what the publishing industry is missing. Hint, it's hot and you may be eating a bowl of it and it might be called fajoule in some parts of the world. Matt is always welcome on the show, and it was really great catching up with him. Matt Sartwell, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you, sir. Happy to be back. I know. I love seeing you. I love I loved being in your store when we did a signing there in February. I haven't I, seen you since then. I was just thinking about that and, uh, and how... Uh, how happy we always are when we get to have authors in the store. So it was wonderful that you guys came in. So let's talk about Kitchen Arts and Letters. Uh, listeners of our show will know we reference it often when we're talking about some of our favorite cookbook stores in the country to go along with, you know, Bonnie Slotnick and, and Celia in San Francisco and now serving. We have lots of favorites. But, you know, in New York City, we love going to Kitchen Arts and Letters. Tell us a little bit about the store, when it was founded, and, and really where you're at. Kitchen Arts and Letters opened in 1983, so we're coming up on our 40th anniversary next year. Uh, it was founded by Knock Waxman, who uh, was a former book editor, and he wanted to work for himself. He wanted to own a bookstore. He wanted to sell books he was excited about. So for him, it was either going to be sports books mm-hmm. or food books, and he chose food books. So uh, ever since then, we've been in the same building on the Upper East Side, and uh, we grew from a really small space into a less small space. Mm. Uh, We stock about 12,000 books, different titles from around the world, Uh, lots of American books, but also books that we import from from many other countries. And uh, we love dealing with people who are serious or seriously curious about food and drink and uh, some of those books that we find for them are cookbooks and some of them aren't but they still treat food very seriously it's truly a a once in a lifetime experience if you're visiting new york to go up to the upper east side and, and visit kitchen arts and letters um, I have to also just shout out the the, the vintage and um, antiquarian books that you sell as well. You sell a lot of great stuff there, too. We have a lot of fun with that. That was a, a, an area where Knock Waxman was particularly strong up until the time he, he passed away last year. Yeah. Uh, my colleague, Laura Jackson, had worked closely with Knock for several years before that, and she's taken that over for Got us. Got it. And I have to say, it's, it's amazing to see her run with that. Well, you have to subscribe to the newsletter, so I'm going to link to it in the show notes. Make sure you sign up because... Because every week or so, there's an amazing send that goes out. And you're highlighting new books, obscure books, and we'll get into many of them, but also some of these one-of-a-kind, one-of-ones. Do you write that? Is that you? The uh, the out-of-print material is usually Laura. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we're repurposing copy that Nock wrote. Uh, he Over the years, he sort of created a little library of, yeah. of notes on on books that he was really passionate about. 
but we we follow his model in writing those things and try to give uh, deeper background on those books than we might do on a new release. If it's a new new release newsletter, it's probably me who's done the writing. And it's such great writing. You're a wonderful writer, and you you understand uh, your customers and what we want in books. And um, we'll talk about some of your favorite books. But that, you spend time on that. You, like it must take a lot of time. It does take a lot of time. Um, we, I mean, it's interesting. People sometimes reach out to us and say, why can't I pre-order a book off your site yet? And <laughs> and we're always trying to make it as easy as possible for people to do that. But usually I like to spend time with a book before it gets written up on the website. Yeah. And um, I have uh, some reservations sometimes about the way that publishers over-promise on a book. I mean, it's, there's a tendency to see sometimes copy that says every cook everywhere yeah. needs this book to solve all their problems that they'll ever have yeah. for their entire life. <laughs> and I don't really think that that's usually what drives people to go looking for a book. They're interested in a particular question. They're interested in solving a particular problem. So when I write about a book and when any of us try to talk to people in the store about books, we're trying to help them say, hey, this is a great book. If you're getting started, if you're just sort of like wondering, you know, what is all this excitement about fermentation? Should I be mm-hmm. paying attention to it? There are books that are going to get you started on that. And then there are books that are better for you if you've been in it for a while and you feel like you're ready to take another step. Yeah. Uh, and you want deeper insight. And the best book in those two situations could be radically different. And we're always trying to give people clues in the newsletter and on the website that help them figure out that, hey, this is this is really a solid beginning book. And this one assumes that you've been around the block a few times and that you're asking the tougher, more challenging questions. Yeah. And we call it hand selling in the industry, but it's what you clearly love doing. If you walk into a store and, and you ask you or one of your colleagues at the store, what like what book should I buy? You you oftentimes will have the right book. Do you do you enjoy this part of the process? I think that's actually the most f- exciting part of, of book selling. I mean yeah. If somebody says, that, you know, I need a Chinese cookbook, yeah. I mean, we often say, I mean, is this for you or is it a, is it a gift? Right. We try to find out who the user is because people's expectations can be so, so, so different. And I see all the time, particularly at the end of the year, people put out these lists that say best 10 mm. cookbooks. Well, those make me a little nutty because who you are makes a big difference to what the right book is. And, um, you know, if you just like Chinese flavors and you want to make Chinese food once in a while, you you should end up with a different book than somebody who says, you know, I am really seriously interested in the food of a particular region of China. I would like to know about yeah. its history. So we try to get you to that point. I love that. And really, you are there as a resource to writers, to chefs, to industry folks, to, to just fans of cookbooks. I know many of you listening are fans and We'll get into some of your picks. I want to – the big obviously disclosure here is that we publish uh, Taste Out of Penguin Random House at Random House Publishing Group. But anything we talk about here, this is an open conversation and and I have favorite books obviously outside of Penguin Random House, which we write about often and have guests on the show and Matt does as well. So that is our disclosure. Before we get to some of your picks though, I want to know, are people buying cookbooks with the same passion that they were during the pandemic? We saw an extreme surge in interest in cooking during the pandemic for obvious reasons. Are you still seeing that happen? I think it's pretty close. It may not be cool. exactly where it was because people, you know, people's lives have altered and they uh, they tend to have more responsibilities. Um, and also some of the, some people gorge themselves on cookbooks and they mm-hmm. now have a good shelf in their home. But it's still pretty serious and um, 
I think more than ever, people are interested in books with depth. Yeah. Um, people, the books that tell them about where food comes from, why people eat it, you know, why do they make it a particular way? Does it matter if you change the bean that you use in that soup? Well, in some places, absolutely. You're just doing it wrong if you're not using the right bean. In other places, everybody uses what they want. And you can learn about how flexible, uh, how adaptive a, a particular type of cooking is from from a well-written book. Yeah, and are you seeing um, any tangible shifts in tastes? I know you're saying I'm hearing more depth and and, and more ethnography or history is, is selling. Are there any other, I hate to say trends because I don't believe in them, but is there like a behavior you're no- noticing? Well, I mean, it's always a little hard for me to be confident about these things because yeah. my own prejudices are heavily affecting what's, what's in the store. Um, I would say this has been a year in which we see a lot less reliance or, or um, interest in appliance books, you know, the air fryer books and the instant pot books and things that were mm-hmm. heavily in demand a couple of years ago. I think people have slaked their thirst for those. Yeah. No uh, more sous vide books. We're good. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> sous vide... I mean, sous vide is like, in, at least in professional kitchens, like microwaves. It's sort of become, yeah. it's gone from being something special to being something that is sort of part of the background. Yeah. Um, particularly, you know, in in the restaurant industry, I don't know that home people are quite as deeply involved in that. But um, there could have been, you know, twenty five instant pot books published this year, and I would have probably overlooked them all on purpose. Yeah, um, that's not your thing. But, I do think that um, there is still a wide range of interest in people w- willing to look at books that come along that that talk about a particular place in greater detail. So, um, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, there was the uh, in BB's kitchen, the food uh, yep. that uh, about the food of the um, east coast of Africa. Uh, really interesting book that talked about mm-hmm. uh, the historical connections from that part of the world to. Arabia and to India. Uh, it was a great book that came out uh, last year called Colombiana about yeah. the food of Colombia. I mean, South America is still um, underpublished, wildly underpublished. Yeah. So much left to be said about yeah. that. Like most of Africa, those are two areas where yeah. um, I think the public is more receptive than publishers have given them credit for. And um, so when p- books, good, good books come along, um, they get they get taken up pretty happily. Yeah, I'm hard on sous vide. I have to admit, I, I feel like I always it's a punchline. Hugh Atchison wrote a good sous vide book. I will, I'll, <laughs> I'll shout that out. It's a it's a great book. Okay, Matt, let's get to some picks. I want to just know. I asked you for five because I, we could literally talk about this all day. But I wanted to go back and forth. Maybe five titles that from the year that you know you're excited about that you're seeing your customers buy. I know those are two separate things, but um that you want to just highlight in this, in this conversation? All right. Well, I mean, picking out some things that um, have engaged me, and I have to say I yeah. am sort of a hardened figure because I'm <laughs> you know, exposed to so many of these books all the time. Cynical I am sometimes because you, you see the same things happen, so you're hardened is what you say. Yeah, but um, uh, I'm really engaged with a book called The Miracle of Salt by Naomi Duguid, which was published by Artisan. Um, this is a look at... The, all the different ways that salt can be used. Part of it is for 
preserving and creating what she calls larder items, and part of it is about using it. But Naomi is incredibly well-traveled. Uh, she has been on the ground cooking with people in, in an, an amazing array of countries. Yeah. And so when she's talking about the uses of salt, she's pulling from so wide uh, a geographic field that it's really interesting to see what's happening there. She's also pretty adept at figuring out that sometimes you can't do it the way they do it in a certain place. So how can you get near to it or how can you sort of capture the spirit? And um, she's always very clear yeah. in her books about very whether clear. she's giving you a, a really traditional recipe or she's adapted it. But I think just each time I open it up, I'm like, I could do that. I could, I could have that, you know. And um, given the length of my exposure to cookbooks, I, I think that's always really exciting. That excited you. I, I, we did an interview with Naomi in, um, for our Taste Monday interview. Um, Beyond the Great Wall, still a classic. Yes. Love her book that she wrote with her for, uh, ex-husband. I love that book. Yeah, Hot, Sour, Salty, Sweet. Great book. Um, another book that I think, you know, also I think it's a book that still is sort of a model for publisher titles. I mean, I can't think of the number of books that are sort of like A, B, C, D, yeah. that, that rhythm. But um, they did it first. Yeah. Next one, Matt, what are you thinking? Um, a book called Masa by Jorge Guevara, uh, mm-hmm. which is published by Chronicle. It, this is a really deep dive. I mean, if you're not interested in uh, in stone ground corn and, and the things you yeah. can do with it, it'll leave you cold. But this is a very passionate, incredibly uh, thorough book. And it really opens that world up. Because if you think it's, oh, it's just you know tortillas and tortillas and tortillas, no, mm-hmm. it is so much more than that. And uh, his relationship with the people who produce this corn uh, and the way he helps market and, and get it out into the world, I think is really interesting. Is he a producer? Does he create a, a product or is he a journalist? I can't remember his he, he He imports corn. That's it, right? And, and, and mills it, grinds it, and supplies it to restaurants and now directly to consumers as right, well. Right, right. Uh, a company called Macienda. Yeah, Macienda, right. Yeah. That's his company. And yeah. um, it's just, I mean, he's doing a lot to support traditional agriculture and traditional uh, food artisans. And mm-hmm. um, and the book is, you know, like I say, either you're interested in this or you're not. Yeah. But if you are, it is all that you want it to be. Yeah. And there is no more delicious food than a freshly made corn tortilla, freshly pressed. It is <laughs> actually surprisingly easy to do too. I mean, yeah. I, the, I was doing taste uh, testing for the James Beard Award once mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. – Turned out that I had to go out and get a tortilla press. And, yeah. um, and I thought to myself, well, this is going to be a disaster. and I'm going to be really frustrated and angry at this book that I'm required to test from. And I was like, wow, look, I did it. Yeah. And Do you it, remember the book? Uh, yeah. It was the um, uh, Tacos book by Alex Tupac. Oh, yeah. Tacos yeah. from Clarkson Potter, yeah. like 2016. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it worked really well. Yeah. I mean, his instructions were great. And I've yeah. since checked out other people's instructions. And I think it's... A fairly straightforward approach, but yeah, I mean, they were so much better than anything I'd ever bought in the store. Yeah, and they don't cost that much. These tortilla presses, like twenty bucks, maybe fifteen bucks. Uh, I think I bought it at a Mexican grocery in Astoria for like eight dollars. Yeah. yeah, great call out for the, the the book. Give us a few other ones. Yeah, I love this. Um, I have fallen in love with Delectable, the new dessert book, the first book in more than twenty years from Claudia Fleming. Claudia was famous for a book called The Last Course, which is about her desserts from Gramercy Tavern. This is much less restaurant-y. It is mm-hmm. the baking that she was doing in her home 
largely during the pandemic. She had a restaurant. She closed that at, or she sold it. Yeah. Uh, she's changed her life around. But she is such a thoughtful and insightful baker. And all the way through the book, she's giving you tips and exhortations to sort of raise your game in a way that isn't bossy or hectoring, but it's mm-hmm. very encouraging. And you can open that book and say and find something very classic. And the next page, there's some smart change in the way you flavor something. Sometimes she changes the technique, but I think she's more about the flavor. And there's more savory stuff in this book than there was in the last course, which was almost entirely dessert. Claudia does have an ability to pull things from one side of the, like from the savory side to the sweet side and, and back. And that is evident through here. And it's not a radical looking book by any stretch of the imagination, but when you spend time with it, you're like, that is so smart. Fully agree. Claudia has been a guest on our show, and we did over an hour of conversation. We talked about this book. It was it was truly one of my favorite baking books ever, and I'm not a huge baker, but just getting into it, I think she had like 15 breakfast baking recipes. It is full of recipes, and I think the savory side note is, is taken. I think she's definitely expanded her horizon. It is truly a remarkable book. Yeah, and I... She's also so frank. I mean, she says in her recipe for English muffins, she mm-hmm. says, uh, you can do it, you know, two ways. And I did it one way and I thought it was really fiddly and I hated it. And then I did it the other way. And the, the way I hated was better. Yeah. So she admits that, you know, and she'll she'll tell you that it can be frustrating, but she, she wants you to do it because you're going to be better off. Yeah. In that episode, we talked about how she wrote the book during the pandemic. And it was probably the only time in her life when she had that much time to think about recipes. And it really shows in the book. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I've always thought she was an incredibly trustworthy baker. And I think this book just cements that. Have you been down to Chisiamo, her, her, the restaurant where she's doing pastries for? I had uh, Thanksgiving dinner there. Oh, you did? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk. <laughs> nice call doing a restaurant Thanksgiving dinner. It, oh. was, it was just too crazy this year to make Definitely. plans. And we had tried to set some things up and it fell through. And so, uh, yeah. And um, I'd eaten, I've eaten Hillary Sperling's food for years. Yeah. And so it was just like... It, it fit together so well. It's a great restaurant. And, and did you have uh, one of the desserts, I would imagine? Uh, yes, I did. I What did we have? There was a budino. Of course. Chicago budino. That, uh, that really stands out. Yeah. Um, I have to say we were on our third cocktail by that point, so <laughs> yeah. I may not have a full recall. Sometimes dessert doesn't uh, come into question when you have a few cocktails. Yeah. But um, I love that that book. Do you, you have a couple more? Yeah. Um, I have been so- – really strongly uh, supportive over the years of the the books that Kristen McGlory has done with Food 52 based on her Genius Recipes column for that website. This year she has a book called Simply Genius. Um, I think it is so interesting for anybody who who feels that maybe their weeknight cooking has become a little routine. And some of the packaging on the book suggests that it's sort of for beginners, but I honestly think that it will reward anybody who has yeah. um, a good kitchen comfort level. It's just packed with little twists and ideas and innovations, and it's the kind of thing you can open it up and you're like, boom, I can yeah. do that. I mean, and, you know, if you aren't familiar with the way it works, Kristen sort of scours the world looking for recipes that simplify something or make a change in a significant way. Um, So a lot of the recipes in the book are from other well-known people. Um, But there are 
also her own contributions in there. But I mean, like today I opened it up and there was a recipe there for egg salad sandwich made with fried eggs. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, wow. I mean, think of the text. So she chopped it and, and added, made that into the, like with mayonnaise and yeah. everything. Cool. Yeah. And it's a. Uh, chopped, ch- chopped egg. Yeah. Cho- chopped fried egg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it's a recipe that comes from uh, Alex Talbot and Naki Kamazawa who have the ideas mm-hmm. and food uh, mm-hmm. blog. And it's just like, yeah, that is, I mean, just what a way to change it up. Yeah. So I think that if you're in a rut, if you're feeling a little trapped and you're not really looking for a deep dive into these sort of single cuisine, uh, this is a great choice that helps just yeah. push you off that spot where you're stuck. Well said. I think Kristen is a, is truly one of the, the deft, deftest uh, food media professionals around. She's been doing this for so long that she's part of the, the wallpaper at this point, part of the furniture of food media. She's extremely good at, at – obviously writing recipes, but I think to your point, she brings in a lot of cool voices and that's a real editorial eye. And uh, I think it's a great book. So nice call there. Yeah. And I think she's also just, she's just got to be relentlessly cooking. I mean, yeah, uh, because the, the range of experience that has to go into being able to to find these great ones, she has to encounter a lot of bad things. Matt, let's talk about that for a sec. Cause I think we don't take, we don't give enough credit to the generalist cookbook author because when you're writing about a cuisine, of course, that takes a lot of personal knowledge and, and takes a lot of skill to articulate a certain single cuisine. But then when you get into the general, that there's like a lot of recipe testing because you're cooking outside of your cultural wheelhouse. And it's just like, I don't know how they do it. <laughs> Ali Slagle, I don't know how she does it. I mean, she it's like there's a lot of cooking into these books. It is. And I, and I think it can um, – in some cases, it, what it does is it hones people's sense of – what it is worth passing along to yeah. someone else. I mean, if you have made, you know, 78 pasta recipes in the last two <laughs> weeks, you probably get a pretty good idea mm-hmm. about which ones are worth sharing and which ones are fine. But yeah. after, after all that work, you don't want to share the ones that are fine. No, you want to do the, 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 the one that's banging, the one that's like the keeper. What's your last one of the five? And again, there's many more. We'll link to Kitchen Arts and Letters website, and you should just check out all the books that are being sold. Uh, I would. I had a tough time sort of settling on this on this last one because it's part of a cluster of, of sure. books that I think have been significant. Uh, but it's a book called First Generation by Frankie Gaw, which mm-hmm. is a uh, ten speed book. Uh, he is uh, Taiwanese American. His parents were immigrants, um, and it's one of. A series of books uh, like the uh, Priya Krishna book that came out a year or two ago called Indianish that talk about the food that um, happens in households, in immigrant households, and how they adjust the expectations or the memories of what food was like wherever they came from to what's available in the U- in the U.S. Uh, and that's both in terms of ingredients because maybe you can't mm-hmm. get the spices or the greens. Uh, but it's also because you're being exposed to uh, to foods here that were not part of the, you know, we're not on the table back uh, in another country. Uh, and so Frankie Gaw talks about, you know, his love of Cracker Barrel cornbread and, yeah. and Olive Garden, which are not particularly important to my yeah, uh, culinary. We live in New York territory. City. We don't need to go to Olive Garden, but many people who listen and read do. So. Yeah, and people and people clearly love them, or yeah. they wouldn't they wouldn't be around. But he's also looking at uh, you know th- 
Like there's this amazing section in that book on dumplings and, and bow and all of these things. And he's got his own drawings in there about how to shape them and form them and great photographic sequences. They're, yeah. It's very practical. But from a flavor standpoint, some of them are, are highly traditional and some of them are you know clearly the result of influences that he was exposed to growing up. And, yeah. and you don't look at them and think, yuck. I mean, it's not like they're bizarre, but they're just – they have that American cast to them. And I yeah. I think if we had had books like this 60 years ago, documenting sort of the immigrant melding experiences in other cuisines, you know, Irish or Italian, I think it would have been fascinating to have those with us now. And unfortunately, that didn't really happen at the time. Publishing wasn't responsive to those kinds Which of- is incredible to think because people bought a lot of cookbooks in the 1960s and 70s. I mean, there was it was not like publishing was quiet then. So if there would have been these crossovers, I'm sure there are some crossovers in the histories of cookbooks, but if it would have been, the, if we would have had Frankie's book in 1971, wow, think about that. Yeah, and think about how it would have changed life for other recent immigrant families. That's it. Um, and and how we could look back and also make it easier for us to understand how the people who were cooking this food were also changing the American cuisine around them. Because, you know, nothing goes uh, – it's not just a one-way street. Yeah. And, and these things these things happen. So, you know, now everybody eats pizza in the United States. But there was a time when, you know, the New York Times felt that it had to explain yeah. in post-war era – had to explain to its readers what pizza was. Funny to think about those times. What you say about Frankie's book reminds me a lot of Eric Kim's Korean American as well. That's an an amazing book, and I have to say, um, a book where he has done such a brilliant job of of drawing people in. Uh, he, I think, he has a real gift for writing effectively, Absolutely. and um, and people have responded very emotionally to that book as well as practically from from using it. I review, I look at it a lot, and Eric's a friend and has been on the podcast a couple times, and I just think he has a pizza recipe. I mean, he talks about pizza just to bring an example, and I think corn pizza, for example, with with, with ranch, and yeah, he's a great recipe writer too. So more b- bright future for Eric and and. Again, five is hard. Uh, is there one more that maybe you want to talk about? <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like maybe I, I put you on the spot with five. Um, I actually, you had asked me also to think about big sellers. Uh, yes, and, that's right. And I had I actually had Eric's book on the big seller list. Okay, yeah, because let's it's go. It's been huge. Yes, this year. Um, so the question is, I think, where uh, what are the biggest sellers, and what are like flying up the shelves, and what are being requested? So uh, via Carota. Uh, yeah. Jody Williams and, and Rita Sodi here, restaurant here in New York City, uh, small, intimate Italian restaurant, hard to get a table at. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the book is both simple and sophisticated in a way that um, people just really, really respond to. We've uh, we've had an amazing experience selling it. We've done events with them. Yeah. We. Uh, had this huge crowd at the Union Square Green Market with them. Oh, People cool. just lined up and sold out. I mean, you know, boom, boom, boom. It's such an attractive book that you, I mean, even if you feel like, oh, you know, I have 10 Italian cookbooks, you're still going to be looking at that and you're like, you know, actually, I, I like this. Mm-hmm. It just, it has a great appeal. It's nicely designed. The trim is great. I yeah. love the trim of that book. It's comfortable in the hand. Yes. Um, and it, it has a sort of a clean, elegant approach that yeah. uh, I think works really well. So that's been great for us. Um, we have done 
really well with Jacques Pepin's Art of the Chicken. Yeah. Uh, cool cover. I love that book. Yeah. I mean, his his it's all illustrated with his own art. Yeah. Um, it throws people a little bit because uh, the recipes are not written in traditional sort of single-column recipe style. They're really written into the text. and mm-hmm. um, But that also means that they're almost always very simple and easy to do. Um, Jacques is such a charming guy, and uh, mm-hmm. it's great to see him still still writing, still publishing, and having a success like yeah. that. Um, for us at our store, the Noma 2.0 has been this huge, uh, beautiful, over-the-top kind of book. Uh, this is from a restaurant in Copenhagen, Denmark. Heard of it, Noma. De- yeah. des- destination restaurant. Well, you know, we uh, we encounter a lot of people for whom uh, it's it's still fresh territory. No, I, I'm kidding. It's totally great that you – not everyone knows that place. Yeah. yeah. It, um, it's a giant, uh, ambitious book. It's uh, keyed to the seasonal approach that they take to menus. It's – Photography is absolutely gorgeous. Um, it's not a practical book for anybody's use at home. I mean, if you're running a restaurant and you're looking for ideas, it is going to blow your mind. Um, but I was lucky enough to have dinner there um, late 2019. Mm. Um, it just brought back everything about how wonderful the restaurant was was and how exciting and interesting the food was. It's famously does not have recipes. It has QR codes. And I have to ask you what you think about QR codes adding, uh, meaning you scan your phone and there's extra content outside of the book that this book is offering. Molly Baz did a really great job with her book a couple years ago um, with QR. Are you into this or maybe it's, is it maybe not right? Well, I mean, I think with the Noma book, because most people are not buying that book to Mm-mm. make that recipe. They're buying that book to get a perspective on a particularly uh, distinctive uh, culinary imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not going to open that up and say, oh, I'm going to make that exactly. So if you look at the QR code um, and you understand something about the process, that's fine. Um, it's a big book already without, you know, additional recipe text. Um, for a home book, I think that generally speaking, it should all be there. I yeah. think there should be, you know, if there is a photograph of the dish, it should be opposite the recipe. Uh, in Molly Baz's book, the QR codes are actually really helpful for small additional yeah. techniques. You were like, I don't really understand how she folds that thing mm-hmm. uh, and you look at the QR code and she explains it. I mean, I remember she she talked about, you know, if you're salting a dish, you, you should be holding your hand a certain distance above the food and, and Always great advice. Go at least 12 to 20 inches above. You don't want to oversalt. Yeah. yeah. And and I think that in some ways that visually that stays in people's memory better if they've seen this woman, mm-hmm. you know, explaining it as she does it. So I think that's fine. Um, if it's... If it's what should be core content, uh, you have to understand the situation really well. I mean, I uh, I don't want to be yanking my phone out and looking at it when I'm in the midst of cooking. I'm a messy cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, my hands are almost always wet. They might be a little slimy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't want to have to replace my phone in order to make soup. Makes sense. So uh, it's not my first choice, but sometimes it works out pretty well. Any other bestsellers that you, we haven't t- talked about? Um, we're really also blowing through the new Deb Perlman, Smitten Kitchen Keepers. Um, I have to say that um, having been with Deb at a couple of events and listened to how excited people are to talk to her about 
their successes with her book and her writing. I mean, she writes great recipes, but her personal stories written in there are things that people are really motivated by. Mm-hmm. And Great word. Great um, word with Deb. Yeah, and I th- she's just so charming and so generous. And, um, you know, this sort of leans towards something I was maybe going to talk about a little bit later, but she's been writing her blog since 2000. Six. So we're looking here at, you know, 18 years, yeah. something like that. I can't do the math in my head anymore. <laughs> but it's not like 10 years. But she's not pumping out a book no. every, you know, every year or two. She waits. She she chooses carefully. Uh, she really is thoughtful and conscientious about yeah. it. And when the book comes, people are excited to see it. And this one has been huge. I think she says she takes like three to five years per book. And it clearly – there's patience there. And I love Deb's energy. Everything about her is just warm. It's yeah. very warm. Yeah, she's. I mean, she really cares when people yeah, talk to cares. her about about how a recipe worked out for them. Um, who's shopping at Kitchen Arts and Letters? I feel like it's always like a cool mix in there. There's, there's. I, I, I try to stop by when I can. I mean, but I know chefs are there. I know food media folks are there researching their own books as I am buying books from you. I know that there's customers from the Upper East Side are probably buying all their books there. Who, who shops there? It is, it, is a, it is a fun mix. So we do see, um, you know, serious New York restaurant chefs coming in. Name the names. Who, who's coming in? Uh, I love names. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, uh, Angie Marr. Yeah. Uh, is uh, very serious. She's thoughtful and careful about what she buys. Uh, we see, you know, we see Dan Barber. We see Eric Repair. Um, we also often see people out of their kitchens mm-hmm. uh, because there are chefs who really encourage their staff to spend time learning uh, and to seek out more than what they're experiencing right there on the line under the pressure of, you know, that's a great way to learn mm-hmm. certain things, but it doesn't necessarily teach you about opening the world. Will up you swipe bit. some like major food group corporate cards once in a while? <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, you know, we, you know, like uh, we see some chefs who come in and definitely do their holiday shopping with sure, us. I mean, Carmelini yeah. uh, has done really well by his staff some years, really. Uh, yeah. Wants wants people to be thoughtful about what they're doing. I mean, and and really, it does well to the food in, in the industry. It's nice to hear chefs buying books, and especially from an independent retailer, and just buying them, you know, in mass. It's nice. Yeah. Well, and we, you know, we help people. We help them choose things, and yeah. we, you know, whether you're, you know, buying. 40 books for uh, the staff at three restaurants, or you're, you know, buying a book for your cousin. We're happy to talk to you. Um, I have to ask you about your own home cooking. <laughs> Are you cooking yourself? I mean, you just did Thanksgiving at, at, in a restaurant, which is smart because you're clearly working a lot right now. Are you cooking much? I I think I make dinner at home four nights a week. Okay. Uh, and then there's some leftovers and there's definitely some restaurants and going out. Uh, I try to throw in a little bit of testing with, yeah. you know, a new book comes along. I'm like, I like that. I want to see if it works. Um, I like to be able to talk to people and say, I made this dish yeah. and it was great. Or this is pretty good, but, you know, I thought it needed a little something else. Yeah, there was maybe a little disconnect with the instructions or maybe even a missing direction, which happens sometimes. It happens. And also, yeah. you know, one of the things to divert slightly, recipes get written with different styles. And 
it really helps to know how detailed a book is. So, you know, an example that Knock Waxman taught me a long time ago is sometimes a recipe will say, trust the chicken. <laughs> and it moves on to the next step. <laughs> and it assumes that, you know, you have been trusting a chicken for years. And another recipe will explain to you how to trust the chicken. And, um, and knowing how a book approaches things like that helps you get it in the hands of somebody who's going to find it useful. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I bake uh, usually like every other weekend. I'll bake some cookies. Oh, fun. Um, my husband has incredible self-control. He will take two cookies to work for lunch and come home with half of one. That is how. And, his. <laughs> and I say, why is there half a cookie in this plastic bag? And he says, oh, I, I didn't. I wasn't hungry anymore, so I s- decided to save it for tomorrow. <laughs> and I am not that kind of person at all when I, in, the face of, oh in the face of a cookie. So it's fun to bake for him, though, because he really does, he does like them. So what's your, what's your how, how many books do you have in your house? Is it like, is it like I imagine there are a lot everywhere? <laughs> there are not a lot of books, uh, food books in my house anymore. The, I the love ones it. there that I, that I have sort of fallen into over the years and rely on all the time. But I mean, I, at work, uh, where I am five or six days a week, I have 12,000 books to rely on. There so, you go. Yeah. It's, I, you know, I, I work in this giant repository. So oh, it's... I borrow things from the store all the time. Is there one cookbook, though, that's in your house that you just know where it is? Like right now you're like visualizing it somewhere in your house? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've uh, Cucina Fresca, Viana Laplace, and Evan Kleiman. I've had that book since it came out in 1985. <laughs> Not the literal one that's on the shelf because I've worn out several of them. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a book that I almost never make the exact recipe from, but I open it up and I flip it and I'm like, I know what to do with what's in the refrigerator. It, that's so cool to uh, hear. It just – sometimes the, the things that I pull out don't have anything to do with the recipes that I looked at. But it just sort of gets me in the, in the right mindset and I can go in there and I can cook. So. You mentioned Nock Waxman, your, your partner who, who passed away um, a little over a year ago. Um, yes. How should we remember him? I read his obit in preparation for this interview and he lived a remarkable life, did a lot of things and – I, I what, what, how can we remember? I haven't connected with you since his passing. Well, Nock was uh, somebody who started out uh, as you know, from a intellectual standpoint, very much interested in uh, anthropology, and he mm. trained formally in anthropology at Harvard and at the University of Chicago. Um, but he wound his way into books. Uh, book publishing. He was working on encyclopedias and things like that before he got into trade publishing, but he was always, always looking for, for the why. Mm-hmm. Why do people eat this? Why is it different in this place from this other nearby place? And is it, you know, the result of some outside influence? Is it the result of small differences in climate? I mean, he, he just, he was always curious about that. And he always favored books that told the stories behind the recipes. And uh, we've always kept a big emphasis on that. I mean, I took over ordering the new books from Nock maybe 10 years before he died, and but it was always so easy to know, uh, mm-hmm. to spot the books that, you know, absolutely had to have that because Nock would go ape if mm. somehow it turned out we had skipped it. Um, 
we wanted to always keep the emphasis on on the background, on the surrounding culture, and uh, and that was important to him. Um, and it is it is always going to be part of what we do. I mean. Um, there's a familiar shorthand that says Kitchen Arts and Letters is a cookbook store. Mm. Mac would get really angry when uh, mm-hmm. people said things like that in print because, you know, he always was putting the emphasis and saying we're on books about food and drink. And that can be everything from a great cookbook. And, you know, he, he was a serious home cook. He loved to cook Indian food. Uh, he paid a lot of attention to uh, traditional Jewish foods. Those were areas of real interest to him. But he was always looking for that extra, for that, for the beyond, for the fabric out of which yeah. the recipes were, were woven or, or stitched together. And um, so we keep that emphasis. And I, I think that's part of what makes us distinctive and how, you know, we have so many, so many books in the store because we're looking for that book that we can sell one copy of a year. Yeah. I like to think that Knock would appreciate uh, where we're at in publishing right now. And I would like to think back in like the early 2000s during the dark days of the Food Network running, being so popular and, and all, a lot of book publishing being based on the Food Network. That might have been a tougher time for Kitchen Arts and Letters potentially. I, I'm theorizing here. I, I, but I, I feel we've moved beyond that as a book publishing culture. Well, I mean it was – it was not a great time for domestic publishing from our yeah. standpoint, but it did also – it forced us to diversify. I mean, yeah. We really uh, increased the amount of import we're doing uh, yeah. and continue to look for interesting things from all over the world. That's, that's a lot of fun to, you know, to bring in a book from India or from Australia or Japan or uh, Mexico. You also bring in periodicals like magazines, zines, independent publishing, self-publishing too. Like this is a big part of food, uh, Kitchen Arts and Letters. Yeah, we have um, we have I think a, a deep selection of those yeah. kinds of books because they they represent people taking risks yeah. or addressing something idiosyncratic that might not be uh, you know have interest at a level that a commercial publisher could take on. But you know we have there's a, a a guy named Brian Vall who lives in Williamsburg who has published four tiny slender little books. Each one is a single menu and he has seven or eight recipes in there. Mm. And um, they're a little adventurous. They they ask you to use things like rabbit. Yeah. Um, but they're sleek and thoughtful and he talks to you about how – the ingredients fit together, and if he has you buy a lemon, he's going to have you use the lemon in several recipes. He's, um, it's a way of being um, introspective about food, and yeah. you know, and they're seven bucks, and people love them. And you sell a lot of them, I bet. We do, yeah, because they're mean, just I'm, there, and yeah, and people find them, and I'm, I'm yeah. and I'm going back to him and reordering twenty five copies at a time. That's so, wonderful. Uh, I love that, but we do, you know, we bring in a little scholarly food journal from from Britain called Petit Propoculinaire, PPC, which contains excerpts from works in progress by all kinds of food scholars. It's Mm -hmm. a great way to sort of see funky little fragments of what's happening. And it has this very, very English, British um, idiosyncrasy to it. Uh, There'll be letters in the back where somebody would say, I'm looking to hear from anybody who, you know, was stationed in uh, in South Africa during this seven year period. Sounds like a, like a zine from like 1978, like a punk zine. Well, it is. I mean, it, it's, it's cool. Yeah, it sort of references a world 
before the internet still. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in which people are still sort of communicating and reaching out. But you, uh, you, you see things growing and developing um, in that journal. And they, you know, and again, they're, they're publishing people who might not be worth a 200,000 copy print run. <laughs> but not everything is. No, definitely But it doesn't not. mean it's not worthwhile. I and, love that about your shop. And I love that you think about this. And, and maybe uh, that's not the most bottom line driven point of view, but that's not clearly what you're doing it all for. It's a real love. Yeah. Well, I mean, we we feel that people have to walk into our store and see things there that they have not seen exactly. anywhere else. I mean, exactly. you know, because otherwise you can just as easily order it from from one of the big bad evil empires. Um, <laughs> but we uh, we want you to walk in the door and have that sense that these people understand how interested. I am, I as a customer, not I as a bookseller, I am in, in food and, and they and they want to show me things that I never knew were out there. Yeah. I think the same way as, a, as an editor and, and a writer myself. I want to be surprised and it's becoming harder and harder because you, you, there's so much great stuff out there. You're, it's The world is being covered really well right now. On that note, I love asking you this question. This is your second time on the show. We've covered you in our Monday interview as well. So we've talked many times. But I really want to know and many of our listeners want to know – what books need to be written in terms of, like, what's a topic that people walk in and say, I'd like this, 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 and you're like, I don't really have that. There's got to be something. Well, I mean, I, I think I said earlier that I th- that both South America and Africa yes. are, uh, are territories that uh, are much richer than the current body of the books uh, reveals. It's not that there aren't good books in this area, but there is so much more that could mm-hmm. be said. Um, and I would continue to say, you know, look at that. There was a case last year, I think it was last year, my sense of time f- phrase, uh, HarperCollins did a book on Chinese baked goods, Mooncakes. Yes. And I'm sorry, the title is yeah. flown right out of yeah. my head. But um, that was like, you know, there's no shortage of Chinese cookbooks, but here's something specific and on target and boom, people yeah. really loved it. Uh, I mean, I think it, they loved it partly because she was so careful and meticulous about it, but also because it was just something that that hadn't been written about. So um, I think you can continue to go out there and look for um, for that. I mean, off the top of my head, if I wanted to take off, you know, I, I couldn't do this because I don't speak Spanish. But if I wanted to go out there and say, what the hell is an empanada? Mm-hmm. I mean, because when you go through South America, an empanada is something different from place to place in its size and its fillings and, yeah. you know, and all of that changes from place to place. So it's a, it has this great range of possibilities. And to go out there and document that and talk about that, that would be a really worthwhile thing. What about American regional cuisine or anything based here in America? Is there any, any area that you see undercovered? Um, well, it's um, – I think there is a growing interest in food out of uh, Native American traditions. Yeah. Um, the people who are doing that right now, I think, are are sort of struggling. And I don't mean that this produces bad books, but I mean they have to account for the fact that there is no unified Native American cooking. Um the country, you know, prior to European colonization was so big and so geographically diverse and climatically diverse that 
uh, the, what people were making and eating and, uh, you know, and where we here are in New York, New England is going to be different what they were mm. making in Florida or in the Southwest or yeah. in the Pacific Northwest. So the people who are writing about that are having to connect pieces that are necessarily disparate. But um, there's some really interesting, thoughtful writing going on and also talking about, you know, like the immigrant food that Eric Kim makes or Frankie Gaw makes about how that food has been impacted by the other things that it's encountered. Um, I think American cooking, I mean, there's some parts of the country that are still identifying their what their regional cooking yeah. is. Like the Pacific Northwest, is regional cooking is still largely being defined in restaurants. Yeah. Um, there's no like agriculture book coming out of the PAC Northwest, even though their agriculture is incredible. Like there's no uh, like Abra Barons of the Pacific Northwest and Abra's books, you know, they're so Midwest driven, but she's done these three books based on Midwestern agriculture, but you're not seeing them in the Pacific Northwest. I, I certainly haven't seen it yet. I mean, yeah. it's, um, there are chefs who are there who are sure. really working hard to find that, but um, I don't know how much that cooking has seeped into people's homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and what Upper Barons is doing is essentially defining something. So, I mean, even if you have somebody like Joshua McFadden who is in Portland, sure. who's yeah. writing, you know, six seasons and things like that, um, there's no doubt that Joshua's culinary experience is his range of reference is huge. Um, and I don't think he's disrespecting his local farmers by being aware of the kinds of food that he cooked when mm-hmm. he was working here in New York. Um, but, you know, there are always all kinds of practical everyday things. Like uh, I have been dropping a couple of items into the ears of just about every editor and author I make. Like what the hell is wrong with with soup publishing? <laughs> There are, like, so few seriously good soup books. 20 years ago, there was an amazing range of choices. Soup, what? I don't know why soup doesn't get any love. <laughs> fish. Fish is a struggle. Y- yeah. Um, well, let's back up. Let's talk about soup because I think we can go to fish too. But, like, soup books, I know there's some things in the works here related to soup unannounced. But that said, you're right. Why aren't there more books? Does it need to be prescriptive, like make five soups with these four things? Or do you just want like soups of America or like what – Matt, like what do you want? So Tell us. What do you want? I think when most people come in looking for soup books, they're like it's cold and I want to have soup. So a soup book doesn't need any bigger hook than good (laughs) soup, right? It doesn't have to be 27, you know – soups targeted towards Catholic saint festivals or anything like that. It doesn't have to be anything arcane. So for many years, I loved a book that is no longer available by Deborah Madison on vegetable soups. An amazingly useful, solid, insightful book. And it's out of print. It kills me. Wow. Um, It kills me. Uh, that we can't get that. Is that a is that when she was at Ten Speed or is that a different publisher? Do you remember offhand? Uh, it's somewhere within the Penguin Random House umbrella, but I think it may have actually originally said Bantam on it. Okay, it was a while ago. I'd, I'd have to look it up. But a really, really useful book, and just so full of ideas that you could steal and run with. I mean, she's just Deborah Madison's an amazing cook. Her sense of flavor is spot on, and. Th- there's actually a soup in there that I stole, <laughs> um, and I, 
it's a soup that has tofu and mushrooms in it. And I don't particularly care for tofu and mushrooms in my soup, so I leave them out and I just make the broth and I use it in all kinds of other things. Is it like a dashi? Are we talking East Asian? No, it's uh, it's just this really aromatic broth that has cool. ginger and two types of onions and yeah. cilantro and um, just a great vegetable soup. It's yeah, it's a great base, but you know you can just you know you make it and you cook your rice in it. I mean, yeah. you, anyway, soup is soup is an incredibly versatile thing. People respond to it well. They don't tend to come looking for like something really specific. I mean. If somebody came to me and said, here's a great Japanese soup book, I would be happy. But it doesn't have to be that. But soup is a soup is a practical, everyday thing that many, many people like to make. It freezes well. Yep. You can keep it or you can give it to your kids. You know, it's, it has this versatility. And the shortage of soup books is really frustrating. Because we've had more like Brodo broth books, like with the whole idea with broth, but that's different. You're definitely delineating it. That's, yeah, that's a very specific itch to scratch. And yeah. pe- people, I mean, there are some people for whom that's really interesting. <laughs> eh, but sure. most people when they're talking about soup, they just, they you know, they, should I have some beans in it? Should yeah. I make it with chicken? Should I make it with beef? And we want fajul. We want like a new fajul. We want a meatball soup. We want chowder. We We want something that I mean, soup is is such an informal recipe in most cases that you can you know you can play with it. You can open it up and help clean out the strange yeah. odds and ends in your refrigerator, and um, you know you can serve it at a party. You can and and it's just been getting no love. Can you hand sell a soup book in July, Matt Sartwell from Kitchen Arts and Letters? Uh, I could sell a cold soup book in July for well, sure. We used I, to have a couple of cold soup go. books and people were really interested in them. That's a, obviously a more specific thing, but um, I mean soup is soup is a pretty versatile you thing. You sell a lot of books in Q3 and Q4 as well. So it's not like the July or July is Q3, but like you don't sell – like there's a lot of times of the year that soup makes sense to sell a book, right? Yeah. I mean soup has a, a window when people are less interested in it and I would probably say that that's July and August. But otherwise, you know, um, you know, we struggle as a store with the publishing industry's fascination with the first quarter of the year being about weight loss books. I know. Makes me nuts. Me too. It, it makes me nuts as an editor. It makes me nuts as a book lover. And so, I mean, instead of, you know, 17 books on, on how to lose five pounds, you know, if we had four new soup books this year, <laughs> it's too late for 2023. But, I mean, it would be, it would be really encouraging. Um, so it's that kind of everyday cooking, you know, as, as lofty as our ambitions are about high culture and food. I mean, practically speaking, people like to make soup. Yeah. And you were going to say a little bit about fish. So fish books, uh, there are some amazing fish books out there. They tend to come at the high end. Yeah. And one of the real struggles for somebody who is getting, who is new to fish or who is afraid of fish, is that the, it's hard to find a book that's like, get a salmon filet, and here are, here are 10 things you can do with it. Um, so books that talk about the food, the, sa- the fish that is easily accessible to people, that give them easy things they can do with it, that do not involve shopping at three different grocery stores. Uh, yeah. Because frozen fish, let's cook with it more. We have in Food IQ, we had a frozen fish recipe in the microwave. I mean, listen, you got to do that sometimes. Yeah, and but things that, that are practical because, you know. Smart. 
books that are wonderful flights of imagination have a real place in the world, and they they can be very helpful to people. But where the market is failing people right now is that person who's you know maybe their doctor says you got to stop eating so much beef, eat some fish, or maybe they just they like fish in a restaurant, but it always scares them at home. It's a difficult to find that entry level fish book that um, that gives people confidence that they're going to have a nice dinner. Fish tends to be more expensive than a you know, than a piece of chicken breast, so they're cautious about buying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if it's like, yeah, go get some truffle oil and some yeah. pimented split and, you know, five other things that you cannot find at your supermarket, those recipes are too remote. Yeah. I'm thinking about good soup right now. I'm just, like, keep thinking about it. I think I think this might have to happen. I'm glad you, you'd be on board. I, I, you know, I would do a soup window I can't even do a soup window right now. That's how bad you it can't is. Imagine. I cannot put enough soup books together to do to a do soup a window. window. He can't do a soup Display. window, and it's going to be February soon, and people will be wandering the streets of New York, freezing to death because well, Kitchen Arts and Letters doesn't have a soup window. Anna Hazel taste book from 2018 lasagna. Put that in your window. People <laughs> buy that one. Matt, we ask all guests on Taste Podcast. This is particularly important from from you. If you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, or the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline. This is the dream cookbook project for Matt Sartwell. What would that book be? I don't think it would be a cookbook. Great. Uh, I'm not a formal recipe writer, and I have to acknowledge that that's an amazing set of skills that some people possess, and I don't. I would love the chance to write the book about how people use cookbooks because people's uses of books are so different. And, you know, there are the people for whom following a recipe is is a way of relaxing and and you know and giving up responsibility and control and it's just like yeah. i did what they told me to do and i got a great result and there are people who are like oh that's a good idea and they close the book and they go in the kitchen and cook and in between those two poles there are a lot of different styles and i think you know after having watched people buy cookbooks for 32 years or however long i've been doing this um, you see people respond and choose books with such different ambitions in mind. And I'd love to have the time to sort of thoughtfully organize uh, the insights that I've gained to talk about that because I think it would help uh, anybody who else is thinking about writing a cookbook to understand what books should include or you know, how to signal to the to the public the type of book that they've written. Mm-hmm. You know, this book is meant to inspire you, boom. Uh, this book is meant to solve a particular problem. This, you know, teaches you to bake without eggs or it teaches you to make soup or whatever it is that yeah. that is motivating the author and the writer. Um, I think there is a pull that exists in publishing in the wider media world um, and in the casual conversations who assume that all food books serve the same purpose. Uh, it's just sort of like, oh, it's a recipe book. Yeah. And, um, and sometimes it's really – the recipe is just a step on the path. I know. It's such a depressing thought to think that. Like that's a mentality some people have is that all recipe books do the same thing. Well, I mean, you know, it's uh, – if we were making movies, 
we'd you know we'd be bitching about the, mm-hmm. the same thing as totally. That, that We're, sort of, this is a real insight. You've made it this far. Thank you for sticking with us. It's a, kind of an inside <laughs> baseball talk. But if you love cookbooks, this is what Matt. You want to talk to Matt Sarwell. So well, thank you. No, I you know I will always encourage people to to think about a fresh approach. I love that. Matt Sartwell, such a pleasure. Thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you, Matt. Delighted to be here. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.